Well, here we are back looking at the progress of redemption through the Bible. We're into the minor prophets, as they say. We've looked at Hosea. Brother Preston looked at Hosea. We're going to look at Joel here, probably go back to the New Testament again next week. But let us look here at the book of Joel. There are three chapters here. It's uh, a book that uh, is very striking and definitive in its declaration. There certainly is much for God's people in our day here in the book of Joel. Read in your hearing was chapter 2, a few passages of Scripture there. And I would encourage you and remind you, perhaps even to consider this here, chapter 2, verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. It was a, a certainly a practice of the day to express uh, a great repentant heart and a desire to humble oneself in the renting and the tearing, if you will, of clothing. But Joel is getting to the very heart of the matter and recognizing that it is actually not that difficult to outwardly express penitence and humility But the challenge, ultimately, that can be done only by the power of the Holy Spirit is to rend the heart, is to humble the heart. And so that's what Joel is drawing our attention to today. But let's look here. Lord willing, we'll look through this book. We'll walk through this book together. There are a number of very grandiose uh, prophecies that come out of this book, not least of which is the final day of judgment. Uh, The day of Pentecost is prophesied in Joel, uh, as well as the great end of the days of the earth in its sinful state as we know it, and the first day, as it were, of God's great judgments of all that have stood in opposition to Him and the opening of the new heavens and the new earth. But we begin, we begin here in Joel chapter 1. And I draw your attention to verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days? or in the days of your fathers. Now, Joel is referring to this absolutely remarkable famine drawn about by locusts. Verse 4, he draws attention to what has occurred. He will refer again to that in chapter 2. There are four types of locusts that are drawn out here. Verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left... The hopping locust has eaten what the hopping locust left. The destroying locust has eaten. Uh, This is not allegory. Uh, There was absolutely a famine in the land caused by locusts. And we see also that, of course, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, was plagued by those enemies that often did come from the north. There's a reference to that here in the book of Joel. But it's important for us to recognize at the outset that while while there were many wicked nations that were brought against the nation of Israel and against the nation of Judah such that uh, they would do this one thing, and that is to have their hearts drawn to him, there's also a recognition here that while 
again, their attention very likely was at those physical armies of other nations and what has God done in the book of Joel. But nonetheless, to assure the people of Israel and Judah that uh, they have far more issues than simply the issues of foreign nations. And that if He would bring His people to repentance, to a teachable spirit, he He can very easily do that with a little bug called a locust. A little bug called a locust. Now, I was never so amazed when the Lord saw fit to take us to Marine Corps Boot Camp, Paris Island, as a chaplain, that many strong men are run out of Paris Island by a little bug called a sand flea, also known as flying teeth. And it's amazing how they can run off the strongest of men and have them sitting and languishing in the air-conditioned home. And so God is at work here with the locusts. And what we see is he's drawing attention simply to this idea. He asked the elders, has such a thing happened in your days? Now, Joel is referring to what we know in society is a normalcy bias. A normalcy bias. This idea that things will continue as they are. That things aren't as bad as we think they are. That this is sort of normal. That things are actually rolling along continually. And Joel asked the question to the elders in the group, have you ever seen anything like this before? Have you, ever, have you ever witnessed this? And you may say, oh yeah, well, you know, back in my day it was like this and that. And, but what Joel is declaring and what is with an absolute certainty to be true is no. As a matter of fact, there never has been a day like this. And what is he drawing their attention to? Something that they're dramatically missing. Oh, it is of the Lord. It is of the Lord. Now, we can look at our own nation, and nonetheless, I recognize that every four years when the presidential election cycle comes around, this is the worst of times, this is the worst of times, this is the worst of times. That may be true. (laughs) That may, in fact, be true. Because it does appear that with a few aberrations of God's grace, that our nation has taken a step decrease in simply the ideas of morality and a moral uplift from our own nation. And so again, while you may, you may just shrug and look at your feet and say, yeah, whatever... I think that God would hear us, hear the prophet Joel, and say, this thing is of the Lord. And we're not declaring the sovereignty of God in this case. We all know that God is sovereign. We're saying, no, no, this is a special and unique evil that has been brought about for one distinct purpose, 
for God's people. And that's what he's addressing the elders today. This is called the age of absurdity in our own nation. The folly of gender fluidity, the lie of Marxist equity, the danger of rejecting history and truth, and the horrible realities of bureaucratic despotism. I don't care who you are, you've never seen this. You've never seen this. Not in this nation. And so... And so you can compare it to one thing or another, but the reality is, is it's urgent for us to recognize this is of the Lord. This is of the Lord. Don't try to reduce the importance and scope of the situation. It is of God. Designed to have a great purpose. That's the purpose of redemption. Not primarily for endless, annoying analysis. We're good at that. Blah, blah, blah. Endless, annoying analysis. We utterly miss the point. Yes, there's still a cultural mandate. Yes, we can and must find God-honoring solutions to our human problems. But nonetheless, what is God getting the attention of His people? For what purpose? The greatest concern revealed is this. How's your relationship to God? Is it marked by humility, teachableness, and repentance? Is your relationship to God marked by humility, teachableness, and repentance? Get over yourself and get over the culture. That's what Joel is telling us today. So you want to go back to the old days? Yeah, I get it. Those are some good days. We, we should rightly appreciate and look at and study the truth of history in our own nation and in other nations in the world. But that's not the grand purpose of this thing that is of the Lord, this place where we find ourselves culturally. Now let's consider simply the context of this proclamation that Joel is being brought about by God to tell His people this concept of suffering and, if you will, natural disasters. Suffering. Christians in the West are an anomaly when it comes to suffering. A hard day for us. What is that like? You run out of coffee? Did you have a blowout? Did you lose your job? We don't, we don't know anything about suffering. We, we know a little bit. And by the grace of God, we, we, yes, we, we have people that, that have, we know people that have involved themselves in, in, in far more grave and challenging situations than ourselves. But the reality is, is we're inclined when we encounter suffering to studiously manage and create a legacy in our families not to suffer. 
And that's not necessarily a problematic goal. It's just that involved in that culturally in America is this studious idea that that I am isolating myself because when I isolate myself from suffering, what have I just done? Well, as Bunyan indicates, as evangelist, I believe, indicated to Christian about going and avoiding Vanity Fair, he said, you would have to go out of the world to accomplish that. You would have to go out of the world. Suffering is not our enemy. That's one of the messages of the prophet Joel. Suffering is not our enemy. Yes, we have to deal with it. We have to manage it. We have to think ahead about it. We have to think selflessly about the possibility of suffering. We need to certainly place our sanctified minds and actions. We think about what to do in those hard days. But we shouldn't miss the point of suffering. The Lord Jesus had something to say about this. I draw your attention to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter Now, Luke chapter 13 is a reference. The Lord Jesus Christ is referencing a certain occasion here, two issues. Luke 13, verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is the Lord Jesus saying? Well, He's addressing, he's addressing two things, two, two separate events. The one event is this massacre of Galileans who were worshiping God and sacrificing to God. And he had them killed. And the second event was a tower in Siloam that fell and killed a number of people. And so, they, and so the Lord Jesus is bringing this up and, and you'll, you'll listen in vain for a political explanation about what Pilate did. Because he didn't do that. And you'll also listen in vain for an explanation on the construction of the tower in Siloam. You'll not hear that. But what you will hear is that unless you repent, you will also perish. You will also perish. Now, perhaps a tower won't fall on you. Perhaps you'll not be martyred by political entities. 
But nonetheless, without a heart that's repentant, humble, and teachable, you're not redeemed. You will perish. Jesus doesn't assume that those under Pilate or those who were killed in the collapse of the tower didn't deserve their fate. He insists that death in this way, that is of suffering, is not evidence that those who died are any more wicked than those who escaped that death. Jesus treats wars and natural disasters not as items of discussion on the mysterious ways of God, but incentives to repentance. When some soldier comes back from the war, injured but not killed, what do we say? Oh, the Lord was watching out for him. Well, what are you saying about all the other guys that got killed? Yeah, that guy died in a terrible accident. This one was saved. What, 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 about, what, about, what about those guys? What are, you, what are you implying? The Lord Jesus completely lays to rest this idea that's dealt with over 40 chapters in the book of Job, over and over. Again, you read the book of Job and you're like, yeah, yeah, this is the same issue that we just talked about. Here's his three friends saying the same thing. And Why? Because we can't seem to get it. We can't seem to get it. We miss the point of suffering and of a God-brought disaster. It's, It's about our hearts being turned to God. Disaster is a megaphone to get our attention and draw us to be sober about our guilt and destination. Peace and tranquility are marks of God's mercy and goodness. We do not deserve them. We will never deserve peace and tranquility. We will never deserve peace and tranquility. You may hate me for saying that. And it might ruin your day. I hope it doesn't. But you cannot earn peace and tranquility. Faithfulness to God is not a currency that you offer to Christ in exchange for peace and tranquility. Yet you probably should admit that you sometimes think that way. That the operations, the thoughtless, if you will, unconscious actions that you have, you're inclined to think about it that way. Because when something bad happens to you, what do you think? Well, likely it goes something like this. What did I do to deserve this? Many devalue faithfulness and careful obedience because they live as if they intend to purchase peace with it. 
And when the peace they envision doesn't occur, they leave off careful obedience. In other words, the point that Joel is getting at, and one of the significant points for us is this idea, that if we view careful obedience to God, holiness, if you will, that which can only come from a new life in the Lord Jesus, if we treat that as a currency, that is, if we treat that as a trading object for God, do you see how that is so cheap? And then if we continue along that thinking, and what we see is, okay, well, I've laboriously tried to be faithful, and what has happened is that my days are not getting better. And then what happens? Well, you say that faithfulness to God doesn't work. It doesn't work. Well, what... What did you expect out of faithfulness to God? You're, you're trading it on the open market. That isn't the intent of holiness. The intent of holiness is that we would have a relationship with our Savior, the Lord Jesus. That it is a fruit of new life. Faithfulness will bring a deeper sense of God's care and love for us, but it must be viewed biblically. One of my favorite biographies is a biography by, well, it's about a man named Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon was a British prisoner of war in a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World War II. It's likely that he wasn't redeemed until he came to that camp. Ernest Gordon was a man who was placed in the death area of the camp because it was expected that he would die very soon. He was grotesquely uh, impacted because of the lack of food, all of the challenges of what a death camp brings. And then some believers came along and they began to wash the putrefied wounds on his legs. They offer him some clean rice. And day after day, he began to slowly be able actually to walk. And in the process of this suffering that God used, Ernest Gordon came to understand and ultimately to proclaim what it is that Joel is proclaiming here in this book. No doubt many of those men planned and attempted to escape as they should, but their grandest thoughts were not about the horrifying atrocities of the Japanese prisoner of war camp, nor likely about the atrocities of the war. Their suffering brought them to this place that we all must go. And that is an affirmation of our need for Christ, of a Savior. Because of our own personal sins and the ways that we have worked against the Lord. These knew 
even in the midst of suffering, perhaps profoundly because of it, these understood the things that Joel speaks of, the sweetness of walking with God. Chapter 1, verse 4, as I mentioned already, the devastation of the locusts here. There is nothing left. There's nothing left. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in past the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The affliction will not and cannot be removed by mourning and lamentation. The affliction is a call to repent. But not merely a seasonal call to repent until the affliction passes. But to build a permanent character trait of the redeemed. Humble, repentant, teachable. Because that's also what we do, right? But yeah, this is horrible. Let's repent. Okay, well, what happens when things get better? I don't feel like repenting anymore. I think I'm over that. And Joel is bringing our attention again to this idea. Wait, wait, wait. Again, you've missed the point. Chapter 1, verses 17 through 20, yet more devastation. The seed is ruined. There's relentless heat. The rivers dry up. Chapter 1, verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is near. Judgment will fall on all. The great day of judgment upon all ungodly powers when God is the almighty ruler of the world brings down and destroys everything exalted against himself. This is the last day, the great day of judgment. This wasn't only in Joel's future, it's also, of course, in our future. And what does he say do? Chapter 2, verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. Blow a trumpet. Blow a trumpet. What does that mean? Well, aside from blowing a trumpet, again, the idea here is that, look, this is, this is, a, this is an urgent situation that calls upon all of our attention. It's no less, uh, for instance, we could look at Psalm 50, the summons that God has. He, he calls people to Himself, but it's a summons of all the earth. I mean, it's one thing to call the children in for supper. But when you call every occupant of the earth to come and witness, that's a thing. That's a thing of the Lord. Blow a trumpet. An alarm is to be sounded by religious leaders. Have they been prophetic or have they shrunk from declaring the truth? Chapter 2 here is not a second address but forms a second part of the sermon of repentance that there should be a meeting of the congregation for humiliation and prayer. Joel again tells of the locust devastation in verses 2 through 11 in chapter 2. And then in chapter 2 verse 12... 
we have the declaration to return to me with all your heart. Return with all your heart. So what do you think of that? What do you think of your own heart condition? Yes, we we have starts and stops. What do you think of your own association to Christ? Is it marked by that which God can only do? Is it marked by that which would be declared actually life? God says, return to me. Return to me. Return to me. It should give you hope. Should give you hope. Verses 2, chapter 2, 28 and 29. This is Pentecost, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. This is absolutely of the Lord, very unique. There was no inclination. Nobody ever waited for slaves to prophesy. But this is the day of Pentecost. This is what occurred after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, there is more of this glorious future beyond that. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, the glorious future of God's people. There's coming a day when the enemies of God will be silenced, wrong will be avenged, and the land will produce bounty once again. Make no mistake... While we're inclined to annoyingly assess and analyze all of these terrible disasters, God will settle all of His accounts. So when you hear of disasters and wars, do you think of repentance as your, and your final end? Joel is drawing our attention to encourage us, really, if you will, to ultimately a biblical trained response. The creation of a new muscle memory. When you hear of horrible things, what do you do? You may say, well, I I didn't cause that. Well, me, me nor Joel here is trying to draw your attention to your direct uh, individual involvement as a first cause in the disasters and challenges of our day. But nonetheless, I would also encourage you to recognize who was present at this event, this solemn assembly that was called by God. Who was present there? Well, everyone was present there. The old and the young. The nursing babes. 
the newly married. They're mentioned in the Scripture that was read in your hearing. They're all present. And they're all present because they're all called to repent and again be drawn and used by God and to be, and to, and to be uh, involving themselves in that Holy Spirit function of being a repenter, of being one who is characterized by a fresh humility and teachableness about the words of God, the ways of God. There was an abundance of tears shed for the destruction of the fruits of, of the earth by the locusts. Now here we have those tears turned into the right purpose, that of repentance and humiliation before God. The judgment was very heavy, and here they're directed to own the hand of God in it, His mighty hand, to humble themselves under it. This is of the Lord. The next right thing for them to do is cultivate a humble, teachable, repentant heart. This thing is of the Lord. This thing is of the Lord. Why is it important that they see God's hand in it? Well, again, we're inclined to think, well, why would God allow me to involve myself in this? Why, why, why this? Why, why am I being drawn into this? I'm a nice person. I gave blood. I helped an old man across the street. No, we're... God is calling us, right, to tear not our garments, but our hearts, to be drawn into this. Humble, teachable, repentant hearts. When God says, you shall fast, it is time to say, we will fast. There must be a solemn assembly. All had contributed to the national guilt, all shared in the national calamity, and therefore must all join in the professions of repentance. Chapter 1, verse 18, how the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. Again, drawing our attention to this idea, the cattle, the cattle have no pasture. Even the sheep who seem to be uh, so resourceful in eating those things that cattle pass by, there, there's nothing there. And why is he doing, why is he drawing their attention to this? Why does the earth groan, as the Bible says? The earth groan. That is, why does, why does the earth not give forth its abundance? Why does the earth suffer such relentless, even if you will, natural uh, disasters and so forth, those things that were certainly brought about by God? Why is that? Now, you might be inclined to, forgive me, involve yourself in some annoying meteorological conversation. 
But Joel is assuring us and he's assuring his people that no, no, the first cause of this is God. Now I want to make sure you understand that. The cattle have nothing to eat. The sheep, as resourceful as they are, have nothing to eat. Why? Because of the sinfulness of man. Because of the sinfulness of man. That's what he's saying. That's the point. Return to your people. Matthew Henry says, It's not a correction, but a destruction. And it comes from the hand, not of a weak creature, but of the Almighty. And who knows the power of His anger. Where should we go with our trouble? But to Him from whom the judgment we dread comes. There's no fleeing from Him, but there must be a fleeing to Him. No escaping destruction from the Almighty, as Henry says, but there must be a making our submission and supplication to the Almighty. That which engaged him to cry to God was not so much any personal affliction as the national calamity. This is hard for us. This is very hard for us. We're a people who rightly embrace this concept of means. Yes, God is a God of means. God is a sovereign God. He works through His people. He works through His enemies. He accomplishes His goal. Yes, He does. But again, as we approach, as we consider, as we think about our own cultural moment, and even even a storm, Joel is drawing our attention to the idea that God is calling us in these moments to think primarily about one thing, about our relationship to God, and about the state of our own hearts, whether it is and can be characterized as teachable, humble, and repentant. Some love the grace of God, but use it as a reason for passivity, decrying that the Christian life is all of grace, as if the grace of God precludes a sense of urgent, calorie-burning pursuit of holiness. For this we must repent. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? How many of us are inclined to embrace the grace of Jesus and say, yeah, yeah, isn't it great? Where's my armchair? That is an abhorrent understanding of God's grace. If you think that the grace of Christ is here to save you calories, such that you're not eagerly, urgently involving yourself in faithful, selfless service to those around you, then you have utterly misunderstood grace. Some love the idea of God's forgiveness and are quick to confess their sins, but they linger in that place indefinitely, never coming to actually turn from their sins to faithfulness. These reject by their very lives the new birth. With their lives, they say that the new birth in Christ is more like death. It doesn't move. It doesn't pursue real life. It doesn't produce other life. It doesn't change for the better. For this, we must repent. We state that we're redeemed, that we're made alive, and yet we sit as if we're dead. We're immovable objects. That isn't a mark of life. 
Some love the bounteous harvest of food, clothing, homes, reliable vehicles, leisure, prestigious jobs, and many thank God for them. But they begin to insist in their minds that they deserve them, that they work for them, and that God, because He is a cosmic vending machine, is only doing what He must to give them what they work for. In this, they studiously forget that others work harder than they and have much less to show for it. They forget that all we have is always a gift. The Apostle Paul said it this way to the Corinthians, What do you have that you didn't receive? Why do you act as if it isn't a gift? Some rejoice in the Word of God. They appreciate the pages of Scripture and affirm their goodness and veracity. But when they are brought to a place of reproof, when they're confronted with the distinction between their lives and the Word of God, they decry that they already know the Bible. They don't need to learn from it. These are not burdened with their sin. They're personally offended at being reproved. But yet, the writer of Proverbs says, reproof is the way of life. And we say, well, yeah, that's good for everybody else, but not me, because I don't need it. Show me that in the Bible. Some rejoice that the study of Scripture has given them discernment. And they commend themselves for their ability to see into people's lives. And write in their minds a prescription for how that other person can be a better mom or husband or homemaker or family leader. But they're blinded by their own giddiness to tell others what they should do. To see the splashes of their own sin around them, yet consider the sins in their own lives to be little and the sins of others to be big. From this we must repent. Joel says, call a solemn assembly. Sound the horn! That's Joel's message. That's God's message to us today. Can we, as God's people, at least recognize that the challenges of our day are of the Lord? And as a response of those, can we take on those challenges personally in our own lives and affirm that what the prophet Joel says is true? I must repent. I must cultivate a teachable spirit. I must be one who is marked by a fresh and new humility. Not just this month. Not just this year. But let today mark a day that's repeated every day. When I hear of challenges and difficulties, I'll no longer initially express my annoying analysis but I will get on my face before God. And I will say, Oh God, forgive me. Forgive me. Draw me to Yourself. May I be the one the Holy Spirit works such that I might reflect the character of Almighty God and such that the fruit of my own life would no longer invalidate what the Scripture says is true. That, as the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again.